Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Jesus said the food offerings, the animal sacrifices, the temple, everything. It all points to him. The Bible is a book rich in colour, in meaning and in metaphor. There are a number of passages in the Bible that are written with double meaning. So when one sits down to read, there is opportunity to apply our own agenda and in doing so read almost what we want the Bible to say. In a sense, we're likely to find what we're looking for. So the question is, what are you looking for? Tonight, as we continue in Ezekiel parallel to our series in Jeremiah, Dr. Corbett asks, the question, does the devil live in Tyre? Does the devil live in Tyre? We're going to be looking at these three chapters, 26, 27 and 28. So let's start in 26. We'll just go straight to verse 2. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. So we're going to have a look at these, some of these verses that set it up. We're not going to look at every verse in chapter 26. So come with me now to chapter 27. So skipping over. So that that sets the scene for chapter 26. You can see that the city of Tyre is rejoicing over Jerusalem's demise, its downfall. And so in chapter 27, verses 2 and 3, now you son of man, which is referring to Ezekiel, raise a lamentation, a lament over Tyre. Oh, hello. And say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. Now we go to chapter 28, verse 2. And each of these opening verses set the scene for the chapters so that hopefully you're getting the picture of what's happening here. Son of man, this is uh, chapter 28, verse 2. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, later referred to as the king of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. Down to verse 12. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Verse 13. You were in Eden. Hmm. Going to come back to that expression in a moment. You were in Eden. The garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper and sapphire, emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared okay so we've got this reference we'll have another look at another scripture next verse and i want you to be asking the question because it's addressed as you've seen from the opening that these three chapters form a section and and it sounds like it's talking to someone but let's see if we can figure out the identity of who it's talking about you were 
an anointed guardian cherub. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. And now down to verse 15. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. Who does this sound like? It sounds like Satan. It sounds as if this passage is referring to Satan. And the reason is the king of Tyre is referred to as being created beautiful in Eden, full of pride and an anointed cherub, which is an angelic being, an angelic creature. So it sounds like Satan. In fact, whenever I've done any study on Satan, most of the textbooks take me eventually to this passage and and they will point out that this is an allusion to Satan. Now, I've met Christians who are fixated on Satan. C.S. Lewis said this, that there are two extremes when it comes to looking at what the Bible says about Satan. One is to be completely fixated. The other one is to ignore. And there are your two extremes. So what does the Bible say about Satan? Notice this. What does the Bible say about Satan? So as we do a survey throughout the Bible, we're starting in Genesis, we see, well, perhaps if we start where the Bible starts, which is before Genesis, we see that God created everything and Satan is a created being. Well, this passage says that as well. The Bible says that Satan is created. It doesn't actually say, unless this passage is definitely referring to Satan, that he was a cherub, Jewish tradition, says that he was an archangel, one of seven archangels. We know that there are four cherubs and there's still four because Ezekiel saw them. So that presents a problem if this passage is referring to Satan. We, we could look at the opening chapters of Job. We see that Satan presents himself to God and before, before the finished work of Christ's cross... Satan had had access to heaven. He could present himself to God. But even under the old covenant, he was still subject to God. Please don't rush over what I just said. Because there is this idea that God and Satan are kind of at loggerheads and this is going to go down to the wire. We're not quite sure who's going to win this. Light versus darkness, yin versus yang, Abbott versus Consello. It, it's like, it, it's as if it's going to go down to the wire. But that's not the Bible's presentation of this at all. Even under the old covenant, Satan was subject to God. And it appears, if you can process this, and I'm digressing slightly, but I think this will help people to process this before we go too much further. Satan does not have free reign to do whatever he wants he just can't he must be in subjection to whatever god's will is we classically see that in the book of job you've read the book of job nothing happens to job by satan that god doesn't ordain now you might think well that that's 
that's a pretty rugged picture you're giving me of God. No, it's a, it's a wonderfully glorious picture we're giving you of God. Because look at the end of the story. Job is utterly restored, double-fold what was taken from him. But we see that Satan is able to inflict people with God's ordaining approval. We see in the second last book of the Old Testament, chapter 3, the first few verses of chapter 3, it's in the book of Zechariah, that Joshua the high priest... And if you can follow the timeline here, Ezekiel is already in exile. Jeremiah is still back in Jerusalem saying there's going to be more destruction, death, famine, pestilence. The temple's going to be destroyed. There's, there's, there's more calamity coming. And that's exactly what happened. And they were taken into captivity for 70 years. We see Ezekiel has said God will restore you to the land. They were 70 years later. They were and a part of that restoration was Ezra, Nehemiah, rebuilding the temple, re-establishing offering and sacrifice. And the high priest appointed to oversee that was this man by the name of Joshua. And Joshua, the high priest, is standing there. And it's an amazing insight that we have Joshua standing before God on behalf of the people. And Satan, who has access, had access to God's throne room could then accuse Joshua of being unworthy to minister on behalf of the people and in fact that's where the term Satan comes from it means adversary or accuser and so we see that this is what he was doing all right so we come into the New Testament. Well, actually, we're coming into that period where the Old Testament is fading and the New Testament is being established with Christ. Of course, Christ himself ministered under the Old Covenant. And we see that as Jesus is led out into the wilderness, he encounters what appears to be a real person identified as the devil. The devil. And we see him opposing Christ in the wilderness tempting him which is interesting the three temptations isn't it satan tempted christ to produce food he offered christ the kingdoms of the world and he tempted christ to throw himself off the temple thereby doing a work of miraculous power in raising himself from the basically raising himself from the dead and christ refused he refused to create food he refused the offer of the worlds or the world and he refused to use his miraculous power to raise himself from the dead at the devil's behest. Mind you, as he served his father, he created food. He is now Lord of Lords, King of Kings, ruler of the world. And he used his miraculous power to rise from the dead just by the way just shows who's really in control jesus said in john chapter 10 that the devil has come to uh, lie steal and destroy of course the counter to that john 10 10 is that i've come that you might have life and have it abundantly what do we see in 
the scriptures that teaching us about Satan is that he was continually trying to prevent Christ from getting to the cross. But here's the bit I really want you to get. And if you feel like jumping to your feet and standing ovation and clapping, please do. What the Bible says about Satan is that he is doomed for eternal destruction. Absolutely, amen. I've read the end of the book. We win. (laughs) When we come back to this Ezekiel passage, I wanted you to know that because there are people that will tell you that this passage is about Satan and it's using the king of Tyre as kind of the the glass, but really he's the window seeing something beyond him. And we're going to refer to this as double reference. So let's consider firstly the historical reference to the king of Tyre. There actually was a king of Tyre. There actually was a nation where Tyre was the capital just to the north of Israel, where they literally were everything Ezekiel said. They were... A merchant seafaring people and they were indeed rejoicing over the the demise of Jerusalem so that's the historical background and that's really important what I'm doing here now is telling you that before you go this is just about Satan realize it's not just about Satan this is actually about a real king king of Tyre and and those three chapters are actually talking about a real person is this is this just a, a window look there you know the window is kind of the king of tyre but through the window we're seeing satan is that what's going on here that's called double referencing by the way and there are some christians who believe that scripture is full of double referencing that it, that it talks about it sounds like it's talking about one thing but it's really talking about something else is that what's going on here Well, it could be because, after all, this passage appears to be talking about someone who the king of Tyre does not qualify for. What do we mean? Well, the king of Tyre surely was not in the Garden of Eden. Surely. Who was? That's a question we've got to ask. So... Because it's doubtful that the king of Tyre was ever in Eden, can we say this is just about the king of Tyre, whoever that person was? Well, I want you to think through what we're seeing in some of these passages, and I've just given you a a sketch of what we're seeing here. Created perfect, beautiful, in the Garden of Eden, called to be a guardian which is by the way what that word cherub means a guardian it describes this person as having precious stones and if you know anything about the breastplate of the high priest this is actually described this person as having that that kind of breastplate with those 12 stones on it there's no other reference in scripture that says the devil ever wore a priestly breastplate who could this be in Eden? I placed in Eden. Question, did God place the devil in Eden? It's unlikely. Wearing a priestly breastplate called to be a guardian, beautiful and pride filled his heart. 
Who could this be? Could be Satan, but it doesn't quite fit. It's more likely it's a reference to Adam. The head of the human race. And if that's the case, what is being said of the king of Tyre could be said of any of us. And I know that crushes many people's opinions of themselves and their self-worth and all the rest of it. But I actually think you're going to have a better picture of who you are if you accept what the Bible says about man. So let's consider this. In this passage, we have two great truths about mankind and our condition. Two great truths. We, in our fledgling tradition, do not do a thing called catechism. And you may have come from a background where you did, but we we don't. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. But before everyone had a Bible or at least read a Bible, a lot of churches saw great value in helping their people to memorize certain truths of the Bible. And it was done in this process called catechism. There are some catechisms that are long, like the Westminster Catechism. A whole bunch of guys figured, you know, we could sum this entire catechism up with five words. Anyone ever heard of tulip? And the T in tulip illustrates these two great truths that we see in this passage. And, I, and, and I'll share it with you in a moment, but I, but I share it with trepidation because we live in an age when the world despises what the Bible actually has to say about mankind and our condition. In fact, not only does it despise it, it is deeply and fundamentally opposed to it. You see, the two great truths are this, and we see it in this passage. You were created beautiful. You were created perfect. Ah, let's just close in prayer. (laughs) That's awesome. You know, you can look in the mirror and go, G'day, gorgeous. You know, you could. If it wasn't for the second great truth. But there are some people that will just tell you the first great truth is the only truth you need to know about you. And if you just speak to yourself and tell yourself what a great person you are, life will just be so much better. You can just, you know, build yourself up and boost yourself up by telling yourself how good you are, how great you are, how awesome you are, how beautiful you are, etc. If it wasn't for the second great truth, which the Bible presents. Because this is a truth. You were created perfect. And please don't stone me. Which if you did, it would illustrate the second great truth. And that is that we're all fallen into sin. So two great truths. Created perfect, but we've fallen into sin. Now there are some people that only accept the first one and they actually believe, and you may have heard of preachers 
from the last uh, two centuries ago, uh, Charles Finney, Charles Grandison Finney, Charles G. Finney was one of them. He did not believe the second truth. He said everyone's created without sin. Every, every child is born without sin. Obviously, he had never been a parent. <laughs> but he, he said you, if you actually, you could, if you lived a perfect life from childhood, you could live a sinless life. And he actually said when you become a Christian, you can, re, you can, you can return to that ability to live sinlessly. Um, yeah, well, look, if you hold to that, all the best with that one. But... Uh, I have totally struggled to, to find evidence that Mr. Finney was correct. So when you read the Bible, what are you looking for? And I say this because you could read this and go, aha, Satan. And not many of us would read this and go, aha, that's talking about me. Because <laughs> huh. that's a bleak picture. You were this, but now you're this. We don't want to know that. So what are you looking for when you're reading the Bible? And I wonder how many people approach the Bible like this. They're convinced that Satan is out to get them. They're convinced that Satan and God are really equal players in the great contest for who's ultimately going to rule. And because they see that, they filter everything they read in Scripture through that filter. And rather than seeing this initially referring to the king of Tyre as a descendant of Adam, they see Satan and they miss the truth of what Scripture is saying. And this is the point. When you read the Bible, you're more likely to find what you're looking for. If you're into the prosperity gospel, it's amazing how many verses you can pull out to justify that position. If you're into whatever you can find verses to justify um one of the questions i i I ask people is okay that that idea that you've got how much of the of the bible particularly the new testament is devoted to teaching what you claim is the most important truth of the bible and if it's not much then you probably need to get different glasses when you're reading the bible so when reading the Bible, we should look for Christ. Now, why do I say that? I say that because Jesus said it. And this is how he said it. In Luke twenty four twenty seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus said, everything in the Bible points to me. Everything. The food, offerings, the animal sacrifices, the, the temple um, instructions, the, everything. It all points to him. Wow. When reading the Bible, this is the, the challenge I think we've got. We should accept what it says about us. <laughs> and there's those two great truths. Accept what it says about us. And there's the T in tulip. The T in tulip stands for the total depravity of man does it mean that there's nothing we can do that's good no it doesn't mean that it means that we're fallen creatures we were created perfect but we've fallen that's the t in tulip so we should accept what it says about us in romans five twelve. this is what it says about us therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death and that is spiritual death through sin and so death spread to all men because 
all sinned. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And you might not like it. And I've met people who go, well, that's not fair. I didn't even get a say in this. Man, you get a say every day. We've got one record of Adam sinning. One. You want to know what my record is? It's not that good. (laughs) We all sin. We've all sinned. That's what the Bible says about us. Isn't this? Oh, this is awesome preaching. It is wonderful. Slide me under the door when you're finished, would you please? So this is what we should do when we read the Bible. Because the Bible says that despite that, God has sent his son to die in our place. And so instead of going, oh man, I'm no good, I'm a dirty, rotten, no good, as Karen said before, you don't have to clean your act up in order to be forgiven. You are forgiven and that cleans your act up. And so when you read the Bible, you should bask in its theme and that is God's glory in Christ. This is about Jesus. In fact, can I just say, God saving you is not about you so much as it's about Jesus and his great glory and his wonderful power and his wonderful provision. And I've heard people say things like this. um, God must think you are really worth it that he sent Jesus to die for you. Can I just point out, despite our worth, he sent Jesus to die for us. And when you spin that equation around, it doesn't cause you to go, yeah, I must be really something. Jesus died for me. I must be pretty cool. Don't do that. Go, despite how uncool I am. Wow, Jesus died for me. Oh, man, thank you. (laughs) Because I know how uncool I am. Thank you. And you're basking in his glory, not your own. Understanding what the Bible says about us and its theme means that we can begin to find hope. (laughs) We can begin to find hope. Hope And what's the hope that we're looking for? It's Jesus. You see, unless you acknowledge you're a fallen sinner, you can't possibly have a saviour for your sin. <laughs> unless you say, I'm in, I've got problems. Unless, look, you could be here with all kinds of things going on in your heart, your mind and your life that I don't know about, no one else in this room knows about. Can I tell you, you don't, have to become something that fits into this mold in order for God to forgive you. And that should be the best news you ever hear. Jesus Christ died in your place because of his infinite, limitless, powerful love towards you. And what we see from what's said to the king of Tyre is that we're all in this boat, we all need a saviour, and here is The question, have you found the Saviour? When you read the Bible, what are you looking for? Have you discovered its theme of God's glory in Christ? Have you found the hope of the Saviour? More from Dr Corbett in Ezekiel next week with the job description of a shepherd. 
podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Does the Devil Live in Tyre, are available via the website, findingtruthmatters.org, or by contacting us at Lagana Media, PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277. For regular updates and special offers, please visit our Facebook page, facebook.com slash findingtruthmatters. Dr. Corbett is the pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.